This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. I think that's good moving. Good afternoon, ladies and gents. So you can close off your email, close off your last WhatsApp, and let's get into it and roll. So since we are dealing with people that are actuaries and the lesson that I learned this morning, you guys are like the serious types. You know? So I'd love to get permission from you that we can play together, but in the politically correct sense of the way. I'm not trying to get myself in trouble. Would you provide me that leeway that we can just have a little bit of fun together, even if it's for the next 55 minutes? Yes? Uh -huh. Fantastic. So when I say okay, okay, you'll say all right, all right. When I say all right, all right, you'll say okay, okay. Okay, okay? All right, all right. Fantastic, but now I needed to have some feeling. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was like your confidential voice. Okay, okay, all right, all right. Okay, okay? All right, all right. Awesome. My name is Huizyona Mudimu, Dominic Khaubebe from an organization called Cohesion Collector. Huizyona Mudimu, it's fine, keep it moving. What does that mean? That's okay. I'll be kind to you though. So Huizyona Mudimu is its own name, which means only God knows. That's what it means. I'm not kidding with you. Huizyona Mudimu. Went by that name uh, pretty much until 1995. So now giving away my age, I was part of the first crop of Nelson Mandela's children. Yeah, 1994 happened, lily lily, and we were like freaking bust to the suburbs. Got to the suburbs, they're like, what's your name? And they're like, okay, wonderful. And so my teachers, Mefo Farmak, Mefo Van der Merwe, Mr. Smith, mm, they proceeded to do a job to like reorganize and reshuffle and reorientate my name. So eventually I was like, you know what, I'll just go by Dominic. Dominic being my second name, being born in a Catholic family where you, you know how the Catholics roll. You're there as a baby, they say welcome, sprinkle, sprinkle, we dub thee Dominic. That's where the second name came from. And um, <laughs> really the organization that we're from, we're a specialist organization in equality, diversity and inclusion. So over the next uh, few minutes that we have with each other, we'll really be positioning some stuff, tackling a topic that often is quite terrifying you know, for organizations, for leadership, especially to be able to engage in within their spaces. And hopefully we can demystify some of that and begin to empower you regarding what is it exactly that we can start driving forward with. <laughs> Thank you, Nama. Wow, wow, Roy. I'm on now. It's okay, carry on. <laughs> you talk about in the political correct today, okay. now turn all right. You started this. So, guys, welcome. Um, we literally have like 55 minutes to talk about something which requires 55 days. Um, we can really be engaging and going quite deep into this conversation, and it requires that level of commitment, but we don't. We have 55 minutes, so we're going to move it, keep it quite quick, um, though it's not going to be light and it's not going to be very surface. So this is session two of six. We'll be running three today, three tomorrow. Feel free to pop in. I mean, I know there's a little whole waiting list situation which I don't want to deal with, but you know, if to pop in throughout and kind of we'll explore, but it'll be the same presentation. But uh, my name is Roy Gluckman. I'm the other half of Cohesion Collective. Um, and we had to engage with you. You know, we have a slide, but we are not committed to the slide. We'd love to call on you guys for some conversation. But so the first part is really why are you here in the session today? Why was the session of value, of interest for you to sign up and or stand outside on the waiting list? Yeah. Why That's is this conversation? Yeah? Tell me. 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> David knows us. I think I, yeah. Why? Why are you here? Why is it? Oh, God, right. <laughs> and we're at the bottom of the list, right? I was also looking through. Other, yes, click other. <laughs> Outside of it being less actuarial. Why are we here? What is some of your quick, what, how, can, how can we make this of value for you? It's about you, it's not about us. I think we are thinking about it. I don't think that we struggle with thinking about diversity. I think we struggle with doing inclusion. Um, I think very often in organizations we go in and uh, the, the language is we're struggling with diversity and then we look and we're like, no, you're not, you're doing amazingly, right? I mean, it's there. What, what we're struggling with is, is the integration and the unlocking that. And I think some of the stuff that we'll chat today is not the business case for unlocking diversity. No, that's boring. There's a McKinsey study. It's a couple of pages. You can go read it. Very compelling. Um, we want to talk about why we're not doing it. Yeah. What are the emotional barriers to achieving it? Because the benefits, the business case for diversity is boring. Okay. Old news. Yeah. But the thing is, when we don't become honest with the barriers mm -hmm. to really becoming inclusive, these things happen as follows. So 2017, Department of Labor goes to the top 1,000 JSE-listed companies in South Africa. Wonderful. We want you guys to submit your employee equity report. Yes, wonderful. Here's your date. Fantastic. Out of 1,027 companies met the deadline to submit. Out of 1,000, 27 met the deadline to submit. Not 27 were in line with a plan. Not 27 were doing the most when they were excelling. No, met the deadline minimum to submit. But here's the thing, we've not met a single executive, we've not met a single executive team that say that they're not behind inclusion, that they do not see the benefits of diversity, that they do not believe in the transformation journey that South Africa needs to walk through. But then if 27 out of 1,000 meet the deadline to submit, we then begin to, we need to start asking ourselves some serious questions to then say, do we actually want to achieve that which we profess? Because the reality is that that which we're doing is very far from that which we're saying that we aspire to be. And, and today is not for us to shout at you or to tell you what we're doing right and wrong. It's an opportunity really for us to pause and say, what is this about? What's happening in the current space? So while this talk together is called talent, what's an inclusion, the new currency of talent, um, you guys are talent, right? Even if you are pushing 60, your talent. This is not a conversation for millennials and Gen Zs to be engaged. We're all coming into organizations, whether we consider talent or not, or employee lead, it doesn't really matter. We actually all want the same stuff. We all want to build a career, get good work, grow a family. This is it, right? Yeah. That doesn't change. So even when we're talking about talent leadership, it's like, no, let's just talk about the human experience within the space, and that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So we have a lot. Should we jump? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So before we begin, we just want to show you a short video, just a snippet of the kind of work that we do. Very dark. 
nitrilizer, white goes up with a few brown sprinkles. <laughs> Social cohesion is the extent to which people are cooperative within and across group boundaries without coercion or purely self-interested motivation. And basically, it's how much we actually cooperate without being forced. So when we are thinking about this conversation and where it's orientated, right, this is kind of the framing of the conversation. This is always the starting point that millennials are changing, now it's Gen Z and now our organizations are going to change and uh, the teachers are freaking out and schools are freaking out because now there's new things and the world is changing and now we need to be and everyone needs to be ready for this changing world and this is really over the last 12, 24, 36 months has literally been the driving force behind every one of these conferences, right? Everyone is saying, hey, the world is changing, we need to be ready. So Dom and I were invited to a, con a conference last year called Raising Boys and Girls with the skill set for a changing world, right? Schools, teachers, parents, everyone freaking out. They're like, this world is changing, we need to get ready. So they said, Roy, come speak at our conference. We said, yeah, sure, we'd love to come chat about you know, this changing world. And we got up there, we opened up the conference. It was a huge mistake because it kind of derailed a little bit. Why? Because we said this, right? We showed them this and they're like, yes, this is the changing world. They're like, yeah, this is it, right? They're getting hyped up. So scary, disconnected, what's going on? And we said, well, if this is the changing world, then explain to us how this happens. If this is embodiment of the changing world, then how do we explain this? Or maybe we said, okay, benefit of the doubt, maybe this is the changing world, right? Betty out of the kitchen, into the workforce, in a cute pantsuit, doing the most, right? And they said, well, if this is the changing world, then how do we explain what happened last year? 2018, Mother's Day. Gifts to wow mom. Happy Mother's Day, moms. Right? So when we're talking about change, a changing world, we come in and we just pause and say, what's changing? What is changing? Because for us, we don't think the world is changing that much, but we are becoming more sophisticated at representing the idea and the narrative and the veneer of change. Yeah. Very good at that, right? at presenting the idea, the narrative, or the veneer of change. And why this is dangerous for us to buy into the veneer, into the facade of change, is two things happen. Either I'm like, thank goodness, these guys are doing the change. I support you. I can't be there in person, but I'm definitely going to like, share, or donate. Go do the things. Fantastic. Thank you so much. On the other end, it's, that is terrifying. I need to protect myself. That change is something I'm not into. Both of them are disconnected. Yeah. Both of them say we're going to step back from this rather than leaning in. So for us, the world is not changing. It's just becoming more sophisticated, representing change. So when we come in and we say raising boys and girls with the skill set for a changing world, we said, no, actually, how do we think about raising boys and girls with the skill set to change the world? Yeah. Because if we are not going to be in control of the change and of the narrative that we need to drive, then the change is going to kind of not mosey along at a pace that maybe isn't what we really need. 
But when we're looking at media and we're looking at reports, right, we see these certain movements which present the veneer, which present the narrative. So we have LGBT marriage equality in the States, this amazing or this terrifying movement of change. It depends on which side of the spectrum you lie. We look at hashtag me too, this incredible or devastating movement of change. Fees must fall, this amazing or terrifying movement of change. Pretoria girls, all of these things, right? But again, these are not movements of change. They're not. All these are, are movements to get people historically on the periphery, the outskirts, to point zero, the starting point that other people have been at for centuries. They're not these overarching, sweeping, crazy movements. It's to get LGBT people to point zero, the starting point that straight people have been at for centuries, and that is marry the person that you love. That hashtag me too is not this incredible movement of change. It's just really to get women to point zero, the starting point that men had been at, and that is what? Call out a perpetrator and something will actually happen. That Pretoria girls is not this incredible movement of change. It's just really to get young women of color in our schools to point zero, the starting point that white girls have been at for centuries, and that is to not have their identity policed, not their style, their identity policed through policy. The starting point. What we need to start thinking about, right, is even though we have black faces and gay faces and disabled faces in our organizations, that is the starting point. That's not change. The starting point. That's where we should have been, yes. right? What we need now need to think about is what does your organization look like beyond zero, where Ms. Patel doesn't have to worry about protesting her hair policy. She can be focusing on her maths final. Because that's what we need her to be doing, is getting the best maths mark not doing this, right? So for us, we're not saying that these are not important, these are critical importance, but it's the entry point. How are we now gonna come and say, what are we gonna do within our organizations to really make this real, right? Because it's absolutely time that we accept that diversity is here, all great, but how are we gonna make this work? And yes, it's scary and it's complex and all of these things, and we kinda just wanna look at some of these and just ask a different question today. Absolutely. So when you see this, what thoughts, are com what thoughts come up for you? What feeling, what thoughts? Can well, you just shout it out? And this is really just a Google image yeah. search of diversity. What comes up for you? Come. What reactions do you have to this? Okay, okay. <laughs> now we know who did standard grade and somehow. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, all right. Yes, ma'am, what thoughts come up for you when you see that image? Uh-huh, yes. superficial. Yeah. Yeah. What else is coming up? Staged. Staged. Hmm. Yeah. What else? Come, talk to us. Looks too <laughs> happy. <laughs> it does look pretty happy. By the way, true story. Um, my wife and I used to sing in a band together. One of Good the band boys. members worked in corporate South Africa. And then she had a tip with my wife. And she was like, no, you're just too happy. You know, some of us have jobs, you know. But like, how? It's not bad to be happy as a human being. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up. Yeah. What else comes up yeah. for you? Yes. Yeah. Which is what race and gender. Mainly race, right. Yes. right. Yeah. True. Or perhaps even when we see this picture. I mean, we are the world. And we believe that children are our future. Yeah. Nice, no? But I think the kind of messaging that's coming through is 
regardless of what it is that it you know conjures up for you, whether it is these happy feelings, you know, rainbows, everybody hugging each other, or that one where you're like, yeah, it's great, but it's staged, which as South Africans we do very well. So I'm pretty certain that a lot of the organizations, when we look at your website, hey, your website, the happy people, all diverse and together. And then we look at your management structures, that cappuccino that was being described. <laughs> right. But this is pretty much our reaction to it as an organization. Yeah. Yeah, it looks nice, but <laughs> this diversity thing is hard work. Because the thing is, if we try to fool each other and just say, you know, being inclusive and getting diversity to work is something that is easy, then we won't get it right within our organizations. However, if we can get to that point where we need to say, you know what, we need to actually be honest with ourselves to say to get inclusion right, to get diversity right, requires that we actually put in a bit of work, then we believe that we'll have a far higher chance of having success than the one where we just fool each other, all happy rainbows, but back at the ranch, none of us believe in what it is that we're trying to drive. Yeah. I'd like to come back to you. So you were saying that's mainly raised from a diversity perspective. Which other diversity were you thinking of that this does not capture? Sure. Yes. Sure. Mm. Yeah. 100%. Mm. 100%. Mm. Yeah. 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 Right. So it's quite broad. Quite Class. broad. Mm. Absolutely. So whenever you're dealing with diversity, it's very broad regarding what it is that we're trying to come into terms with, and we'll get into some of those. But as mentioned by Roy earlier, whenever you want to find research on what are the business benefits really to diversity, I kid you not, you can Google right now. You will find case study upon case study upon case study. But here's the thing. The case studies are not going to change the minds of those that are in a position to actually make decisions where diversity is concerned. The reason why these case studies are not going to change any of those views, even though you say that you'll be people that believe in facts, show me the facts, show me the bottom number, then I'll do the change. Yes, but it's not happening. This is part of the reason, ladies and gents, from a human experience, those things that are very core to our belief system, those things that really wire our fight or flight, or those things that inspire us work as follows. Met a young man, 23 years old, comes to me and says, you know, Dom, I've grown up in the South African education system. From the age of nine, we've been taught about HIV and AIDS. I know how it's contracted, I know how it's managed, I know how it's prevented. A Couple of months ago, a colleague of mine came out as HIV positive, and for some reason or another, Whenever he makes me a cup of tea or coffee, I cannot physically bring myself to drink it. Since the age of nine, all the information, all the facts. But if we just give you case study upon case study, facts after facts, but those facts are counter to that which you feel, you're not going to kick in in actually following this change that we're trying to drive. And so really, whenever we're looking at the benefits of diversity, that our performance, these things are facts, that diversity in leadership roles matters, these things are facts, that doesn't penalty for opting out and not being an inclusive and diverse organizations, all these are factual, but the thing is, ladies and gents, those facts will not change the decisions. That needs to be a journey that is inside out, regarding a very personal and deep belief on what it is that you're trying to drive. But this inside out thing is not easy, right? So when we are looking at what we've been seeing within the South African space over the last three years, and kind of having many of these engagements and doing many of these talks and engaging with lots of leadership, we see kind of, we've crystallized rather three narratives or currents that are frustrating the conversation, right? 
The first of these currents is what we call my role. Okay, so you're going to help me out and you can just shout out. We have thick skin, so go, you can lean in as far as you want. This body that I'm in here today, what does it represent on the streets in South Africa? What are some of the labels I'm going to get? Privilege, what does that mean? Rich? Resources? What else? Land? What else? Support? Street punk? <laughs> let, me, let me tell you the day that broke my heart. We were the senior leadership team into a multinational and did this exercise. She said, you look unprofessional. And this, I was like, oh, I was devastated. I thought I looked cute. She's like, you look unprofessional. I'm like, wow. Okay, not the point. The point is, where do I live? Santon. What school did I go to? Crawford. You know that because we went to Crawford together. Cheating. <laughs> I haven't seen this guy in 12 years and here he is. Where do I work? What's, what university did I go to? What did I study? Who bought my car? All of these things you guys are already going to know about me or think you know about me, right? What my body represents may or may not be at all similar to who I am, but that's fine, right? When I come into an organization, these things translate into different ways. Trust, competence, probably knows what he's doing, academically strong, probably has a good network, social capital, or maybe he kind of, his dad knows somebody and that's why he's here. All of these things are gonna follow me, right? Now, your dad definitely knows somebody. Right? My, my colleague Dominic, this body here, what does it represent on the streets in South Africa? Thief? Incompetence? Mm -hmm. We always have to do a check-in after our sessions with Dom. It's just like, how are you feeling? It's not about you. What else? Struggle? Yeah. What else? Come. B-E? Yeah. Easy? Lazy. Hmm. Black tax? Mm. What else? Debt? That's serious, my guy. <laughs> I know Debt? you're just saying. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> what else? Pardon? Black diamond? Hmm? Yeah. Here's the thing which is really interesting about this comparison, is what sits underneath the difference between my, what my body represents and Dom's body represents, is very much a physicality. Whenever we're running through this, people say, and you maybe thought it but didn't want to say it, is it when Dom's speaking or when he's not speaking? Is it when Dom's wearing this or he's wearing a tracksuit? Because were Dom to be speaking in a different way, were Dom to not be wearing this, the conversation about what his body would have represented is completely different. Yeah. Where for me, as a white person, I don't have to use external markers to say, you can trust me, I'm safe. My skin color does that automatically. Black South Africans, particularly black men, have to use external markers to say, you can trust me, I'm safe, because their skin color doesn't represent that. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right? Sure. Yes. Hmm. Yes. So, can we, can we park this? But, uh, but I, I know th it is complicated, but it speaks to kind of what we're talking about here, right? And that is this, is that we cannot escape what our bodies represent. But we want to. 
We want to. We want to say, but get to know who I am, right? Get to know me first. We get our blood pressure up when we treated how what our bodies represent. And what we say all the time, we did a session at one of the big law firms, senior partner, managing partner, white Afrikaans guy. Also, put an Afrikaans accent on a white body, what does it automatically become? A racist, right? Exactly. So, He's, and he got quite emotional. He's like, listen, I'm trying to drive transformation. I believe in the project, but everyone just sees this tall Afrikaans guy. No one thinks I'm into doing this because I want to do it. And you know what we said to him? Oh, shame, my angel. <laughs> I'm so sorry, my baby. But this is it. Your body's always going to represent that. What we need to manage is this reaction because what he wanted to do was step back. Yeah. Well, if you're not going to see me for who I am, then I just... And we said, no, no, no. Because you're not going to be seen for who you are, we need to lean in and start building relationships and connections. Because we're always going to be seen as that first, right? This is where we are at. So we're never going to be able to unravel this, not necessarily in our, life, our lifetimes, but how do we start managing our reactions? So we don't have the conversation about diversity and inclusion because we're so scared of how we are seen yes. rather than who we are. And what we're saying is get over it. We're going to have to work to get to know each other because this is the work that we have to do. That's where we are. The second narrative that we're seeing within our space is this narrative of voicelessness. So for white South Africans in particular, why do you feel voiceless where this discussion is concerned? Mm. Especially when people are talking about transformation, inclusion, diversity. Why do white South Africans? Race, privilege. Feel voiceless where this is concerned? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yep. Mm. So how why does it make you feel voiceless? What is grounding that voicelessness? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, the historical impact. Yeah. You know that that happened in this room when you were speaking as well, right? <laughs> that happened right now. <laughs> mm. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so not in our lifetime, that's the short answer, but we have to unpack why, right? <laughs> but the, the, the thing that you're raising is incredibly important it because is. you've kind of leaned in to say something, right, and share your own opinion. Yes. And I know that for a fact people in the room were like, yeah, that's, see, that's a problem, right? <laughs> so <laughs> white people are terrified to talk in spaces like this yep. because if we say anything problematic or a little bit on the edge, what are we called? A racist. Yeah. And what happens to racists? <laughs> we go, now we go to jail. Now we go to jail. Or they get fired. And I'm not saying that these are right or wrong punishments, yeah. right? Yeah. What I'm saying <laughs> is that the sanction, the sanction for speaking out, for at least for white people, the evidence of the sanction is sometimes so great that the anxiety is like, I'll come to this talk because it's not the other actuarial things, but I'm not going to talk. And I'm not going to engage mm. because it's just too scary. White people do it so well. We do. We have a look on our face. Hold a hand. I'll be here, but I'm not going to say cock. 
Next. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Right. Yes. So what grounds your voicelessness then? So the other light version of the voicelessness is it's not really my time to speak. I don't really fully understand, so I'll just be present and listening, right? The other version is I feel desperately guilty about the historical. Now I feel like I'm showing up and I don't really know how to navigate. Yeah. All of these come together in a way where that voicelessness is so real, right? So real. Absolutely. Black South Africans. Why do black South Africans, especially in corporate South Africa, feel completely voiceless in the discussion regarding transformation mm -hmm. including inclusion diversity? In this room, you feel voiceless. Why do black South Africans feel voiceless? Who wants to be seen as radical? Mm, what are the labels that go with radical? EFF supporters. <laughs> Wh whenever yeah. they're doing their, their, those Korean calibrations, like our oh, little Julius, uh -uh. <laughs> can't be high potential. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, what's your problem? Be like Mandela. Why are you an angry blow? Why are you so angry? Mm. Okay. So black South Africans also know when they speak up regarding transformation, inclusion, diversity, especially when they're in our corporate spaces, those labels are there. You become that person, that guy that's ruining the nice family lunch. And we're all just trying to have a nice lunch and here you are, little Julius. But what about transformation? <laughs> all right. and, and make no mistake, the sanction that we are talking about with white people is as real a sanction on black people yes. when black employees speak out against leadership in critique of transformation. Make no mistake. Mm. Careers are limited. Opportunities are thwarted. It becomes misgrievance as the tag that you get. And you are worked out. Not always the case, but black people have seen, seen the evidence. You've seen it. Colored and Indian South Africans, why do you feel completely voiceless where this discussion is concerned? Mm. Transformation, inclusion. So this thing is a mess. It's a chamorse. <laughs> back then, we were like, yeah, you're, you're not black, but yeah, at least you're not as black as those ones. Fine, now you're not. So you've got my colored and Indian South Africans, not white enough, not black enough. You know what? Let these darkies and whiteies have their zebra conversation. Uh, we'll figure out where it is that the chips may fall. <laughs> when were our voices ever of value anyway? Mm. When's of value then? Not much of value now. And now you want us to be men. But the point of this, ladies and gents, is as follows. You must realize that we are all feeling completely voiceless where this thing is concerned. For different reasons and from different perspectives, but we're each feeling completely voiceless. And so if we can all understand that as a great equalizer, then how can we begin to form and create the platform and build the bridges regarding really bringing in and hearing each other's voices to enable us to be able to go forward? Mm. That's the work that's needed. Maybe you guys are thinking, why is voicelessness important in your organization? Or why is having a voice important or feeling voiceless as an issue? Because when we are thinking about relationship building, trust creation, information sharing, career development, client attraction, client development, market opening, this is the foundation of trust relationship and voice. So what, where Dom and I get our blood pressure up is when we engage with leadership and the conversation around inclusion is the last 10 minutes of the board meeting that says, how are numbers doing? Good? Great. Bad? Oh, let's chat about that at the next board meeting. 
That's where a lot of the conversation around this is being localized. Where really the stuff that we want to chat about today is how do we start centralizing this conversation as actually being a core, not only people imperative, but linking that people imperative to our strategic imperative within our business, right? That the more we can empower voice within the space, the more we're going to have engagement, not only of the talent, but leadership as well, and start building a culture where people X, Y, Z. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yes. 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 Mm. Yes. 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 Yeah. Absolutely. And I, and I think at that point you've hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Uh, BE affirmative action, employment equity was not part of the 1994 negotiated settlement. That came in 1999-2000 when they realized, okay, we were assuming that people would self-correct, but it was not self-correcting. Hence necessitating how do we now begin to codify so that you begin to actually force the behavior that you want to see, because the behavior was not self-correcting. But the challenge that we now have as leaders to then say, this is the reality that we're uh, dealing with. How do I get to that space where I can begin to think and do things beyond compliance? Mm. Because I believe and I can see what this benefit can be with it for my organization. I think that's really where that opportunity lies that we can unlock. Because the legislation's there, whether we love it, hate it, whether it's effective or not is irrelevant in this conversation. There's this huge gap in behavior and attitude that we need to address. And that's, this is the work of, of inclusion, is how do we start building that? So when we're looking at some of these narratives, and the last one here is what we're going to call the new protest, these are some of the frustrators to building that behavior and attitude. And this new protest that we're seeing in organization is this understanding that how you see me is going to affect how you hear me and because these things are so scary and may may not be me i'm not going to say anything but i'm going to surround myself by people who are safe i'm going to surround myself by an ideology that may, may matches my ideology to create the safety in what feels like a very unsafe world yes. so when we are coming into organizations and we're talking about social inclusion social cohesion we're talking about team effectiveness organizational culture we have to start here and say can we see that these are the fundamental barriers to creating these things that we are trying to do? So first we have to start working through some of these things in order to unlock all of these fantastic things you, you, you want to do. We need to unlock this in order for us to even have the conversation on the effectiveness of BEE. Right now I could be in critique of BEE. You're not going to hear Roy talking about his thoughts on BEE. You're going to see a white man saying that this is a problem, which means he's... And that's just one tiny example. There's quite a lot that we need to do, right? But we're filling the space, that, Im that emotional space, the attitudinal and the behavior space, which I think is so critical. Yeah. Should we put this on the phone? I think so. Okay. So we'd love for you to do an exercise for us. So please whip out all your phones, or whether you've got a phone or an iPad, any device that uh, gets on the internet. This is rare for us, guys. We hate <laughs> technology in spaces like this, but... Uh, yeah. And we want you to please go to menti.com. Menti, spelled... M-E-N-T-I, menti.com. And when you get onto menti.com, please insert that code, 990484.
990484. So go to menti.com, insert that code, and then once you're online, you can look back at us for the brief. Don't fill out anything until we have briefed you. menti.com, 990484. Yeah. So please listen now and listen very carefully. The exercise that we want you to do requires a bit of bravery from your end. But since you're all coming from different organizations, it's not as heavy as if you're doing it within your own. We would like you to think about your organization right now. So think about the company that you work for, think about you know, what it feels like, think about what it is that it looks like. And then reflect as follows, if you were to put your organization into human form, what would your organization look like? Right? And so this is not about what does our leadership team or our demographics look like, no. But this is what, what does the space feel like? If you were to take your organization and put it into human form, what would that person look like based on the feeling that you have in relation to this organization? This is not what do you want your organization to be. No, this is what it is right now that you're engaging with. For those of you that come from organizations that are brilliant at marketing, this is not what you tell your consumers when you lie to them. Uh -uh. What it is that you experience. Who are you communicating with? Who are you thanking when you receive your salary at the end of the month? Mm -hmm. So if you were to take your organization and put it into human form, what race would they be? What gender would they be? What would their sexual orientation be? Would they be straight? Would they be gay? Would they be bisexual? Would they be lesbian? Would they be transgendered? Are they physically able-bodied or disabled? What religion do they feel like they've been raised in? What language do they speak? What's the income bracket from which they belong? If you were to take your organization and put it into human form, what would your organization look like? Let's see. Let's vote. Don't overthink it. It's quite intuitive. Just go for it. What is that? Ah, oh, I see. Hmm. Hasn't reset. Well, one person is in. <laughs> Two? Has, is everyone in? Okay, click on go to slide, please. Got it. Fantastic. Were your organization to be a person, what race would they be? I don't know why, but the tension in this room is raised. Guys, this is not hectic. Just chill. <laughs> Just go for it. We're going to talk about this. No one needs to panic. Awesome. Okay. Cool. Thank you for that. Were your, were your organization to be a person, what gender would they be? Male, female, gender non-conforming? Were your organization to be a person, what sexual orientation would they be? Lesbian, straight, gay, bisexual, transgender, asexual? Yeah, there's not, there's not enough room to keep Sorry. going up. It keeps hitting that ceiling. Uh, so so I'm, I'm guessing that one, they're probably asking themselves, so before 10 or after 10? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is it work <laughs> drinks or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Would they be able-bodied or disabled physically? What language would they speak? English, Afrikaans? This is all Hmm. German English. German English. 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 Cool. Okay. Nice. Hmm. And what religion would they practice? Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, agnostic, atheist? And then lastly, what income bracket would they be? Lower, middle, upper middle, upper income kind of arbitrary points really good thank you yeah
Oh, oh. <laughs> hey. Neck and neck. So, I wish we could say that you guys were unique in your personifications, right? Dom and I do this work every day in schools, all the way up to corporates, in different jurisdictions, not only in the continent, but in Europe as well, right? And literally 10 times out of 10, people personify their organizations as such. As a white male who's straight, able-bodied, Christian-ish, so they like grew up in a Christian home but doesn't really go to church anymore, right? What language, English or Afrikaans speaking, and then upper income. We seem to have matched pretty much word for word. Yeah. Now, everyone look at me, because here's the important part of today's conversation. This is the starting point of understanding inclusion. This is really the language and the awareness that we need in order for us to unlock all those benefits of diversity. Yes. So when we are thinking about this exercise, right, we're going to use this person here as, as, as the generic organization that we're all part of. And we need to tell you two things, very important things, so listen carefully to me. The first one is this. Are you listening? First thing. This guy is not a bad person. This guy is not a bad person. We have senior leadership who have panic in their eyes when we ask them to personify. Because they say, who we are now or who it is we want to be? Because even they have internalized the badness and redundancy of this individual. And for us, Dom and I, when we're doing our work, we're saying this person is not redundant, that we must replace this with white gay women and now we've transformed. But that this individual has power, rank, privilege, opportunities, access, and this person, instead of pulling back, needs to lean into the conversation. That we're not saying that this person is a bad person, that Donald Trump, everything's wrong because of you. No. That is not the conversation we're here to have today. It's to say that this person exists, this person has opportunity and power. How fantastic. How are we going to create connections? How are you going to lean in? How are we going to mentor, right? Absolutely. So the first thing is that this is not a bad person. Seems obvious, maybe, but I think it needs to be clearly stated. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Mm. Yep. 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 Mm. Yep. Mentoring, sponsorship. Yes. Totally. Yep. Yes. Totally. Yes. Uh -huh. Fantastic. So when we are thinking about leadership and we're thinking about this conversation, we have two dynamics. It's the dynamic of unwilling to change and unsure of how to change. No one underneath senior leadership is going to say, you know what, I think leadership is unsure of how to do this. Everyone underneath senior leadership is saying they are unwilling to change. Right? And senior, then we get into sessions of senior leadership and they're kind of saying, well, it's not that we're necessarily unwilling, right? I mean, that's at least on the surface, maybe some are, but actually I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to do. So when we talk about this isn't a bad person, it's very much to draw in the person who personifies and who is like this because it's very often this person who checks out of this conversation. Yeah. And it's the truth that this person's not a bad person because whenever we're having these conversations, rightly or wrongly, the conversation always becomes about their children. Yes. 
are my children going to have opportunities, right? We need to start creating space, but holding the space, right? So the person that you're talking about is the second point that I'd like to land, right? And it's this. For me, Roy, in this body, I know this person. What we need you to start seeing is your organizations as homes, because they are. It's a place that we spend more time there than we do our actual home. Their relationships, their responsibilities, their hierarchy, everything. And we need you to start seeing your organizations as home. Now, here's the thing. If this is your organization, then I need you to see your building, your office block, as this person's home. Now, for me, Roy, in this body, who literally grew up in Morningside, over here, I know this home. This is my home. I know everything about this home. So I'm going to come into your organization as a young employee, still a young employee, thank you very much. And uh, this organization is going to say, Roy, make yourself at home. And you know what? I know exactly what that means. I know the rules of this house. I know the rules to the point where I can break it just enough not to get into too much trouble. I know how to build relationships. I have connections. I know how to communicate. I know how to navigate. I know everything about the space because this is literally my home, right? And that's my experience. There is no transition, me moving from my home into this office every single day. None. For my colleague Dominic, who did not grow up in a house like this, this person will again say to Dominic on entry, make yourself at home. And Dom will say, thank you. I believe you mean that because you're not a bad guy. But this is not my home. I don't understand this space. I don't understand the communication. I don't understand the rules. But this space isn't going to give Dominic the benefit of the doubt, right? I'm coming in and I'm just delivering because I know the rules. Dom's coming in. He has to deliver and learn the rules at the same time. Dom is going to have to learn the boundaries of what he can break before not get into too much trouble. And if he doesn't, he's going to learn it the hard way. Where for me, I don't have to navigate those nuances. Yeah. Just that difference of experience and how we're coming into a space is going to fundamentally change not only how the space sees me and Dominic, but change how it is we show up. This is about the internal. Because we could go around this room and we'd ask each one of you, what does inclusion mean to you? And you'd say to be heard, to be valued, to be listened, to belong, to be seen, to all these things. And all of these things are correct, but it's because they're all correct that makes this conversation really difficult. So we're going to give a, a gift today and say we're going to cut through all of the noise and give you one understanding of what inclusion is. And all inclusion is is comfort. Comfort. How comfortable are you as you to show up as you, not a version of you in this home every single day? And what we know for a fact is that the closer your identity is to the personification of the house, automatically the more comfortable you are. What we know for a fact is that the further your identity is from the personification of the house, the less comfortable you're automatically going to be. And then the question is this, what are we going to do about it? Even more importantly, do we want to do anything? Right. Because we need to understand that to feel comfortable in a space is such an amazing opportunity. And we're not here to shame anyone who feels comfortable because you, that person, no, we're saying you're amazing, you feel comfortable. Now how are we going to create more comfort for more people within the space? That's what we need to do. And again, my frustration about this is that we orientate inclusion again at the last 10 minutes, this touchy-feely stuff, you know, that we don't really want to talk about. And then we say this, why, this is why comfort is important. And you guys measure these things, so just have a look at this. The more comfortable a person is, the greater their breadth to explore and to excel within the home. The more comfortable a person is, the safer one feels to speak up within the home. The more comfortable a person is, the more engaged somebody is. The more comfortable a person is, the greater their courage to try something and to fail, which is the foundation of what? 
innovation. The more comfortable a person is, the greater one's willingness to ask for more, to ask for help. And the more comfortable a person is, the better one learns. Now, these are the things that your HR are measuring, all of them. These are the things we want to unlock. And the only way we're going to start doing it, right, is start building on the relationships of comfort. How do we start building comfort behaviors in our leadership? How does leadership create more comfort? What are some of the barriers that frustrate comfort within the space? How do we start removing that and start building that understanding, right? Because if we think about the fourth industrial revolution as hyper-mechanization, AI, automation, the counterbalancing response to that has to be a human skill, a humanity. And there is nothing more human than comfort. We are creatures of comfort. This is what we are all looking for within our organizations. And by giving the personification, some people have it automatically than others. And it's that inequality of employee experience that is creating a huge amount of anger and fear in South Africa at the moment. Make no mistake that discovery can build a big building with every panel being a reflective mirror. The anger and fear that they're so desperately trying to reflect out still comes into the organization. Your organizations are not immune to all the anger and fear that exists within South Africa. It just plays out differently in the workplace. Yeah. Bring it in. Acknowledge it and say, how are we going to do this comfort thing? Many times senior leadership says, ah, this comfort thing, I don't think I understand it. Let me ask you guys a question. Who of you thought about what shoes you were going to put on this morning? Anyone thought about what shoes? Yeah. No, no judgment. Yeah. It's usually <laughs> me men obviously don't. Who has <laughs> since thought about their shoes? Who's thought about their shoes since they put them on? Why? You're glad. <laughs> it is only when we feel uncomfortable that we think and understand discomfort. Yes. Whenever somebody says, I don't get this comfort thing, we say, how lucky to be you that every step in this organization is something you don't even think about. Yeah. But for the people who understand this idea of comfort, every step in that organization is one that is considered that is difficult. And we need to start having these conversations so we can be building an inequality of experience around comfort. But it starts at owning my comfort and how do I build a relationship to give more. Understanding the personification, understanding where I don't have comfort and how I too can lean into that space. Yeah. Organizational change happens on, happens on the plane of behavior change and structure change. So we can change all of the behaviors in the place, right? But if the structure doesn't create comfort, I'm never going to have that change. We can change all of the policies and all of the structures and all of the mentorship programs and all of the grad programs, but if the behaviors of the managers are one thing, it's n So we have to be changing both the structure, the home of the, the space, and then the behaviors within the space and how we show up and yeah. what it is that we're willing to negotiate on. And a different perspective to that, it's not saying, which is what I think often freaks people out, we're like, once we've now owned that we are Mr. Discovery. Yeah. This is not about hashtag Mr. Discovery must fall. Mm -mm. <laughs> right. But it's really recognizing that however it is that you personify your organization, you must then be able to acknowledge and own that people that most look like that organization that you personified are the people that most are most automatically given trust within organizations, are the ones that often are presumed competent until they prove themselves otherwise, versus the other ones who would come in who may not necessarily look like that. They freaking need to be superstars before like, okay, maybe this guy may be a good guy for us to be able to promote and look after in that space. Where we're wanting to get to is when you get to that point where you can't be able to personify your organization, where you can't decide what race they are, what gender they are, what sexual orientation they are, that's the point at which we're winning. Because it speaks to us actually valuing people as people. The point that you're trying to raise. 
But whilst we can still identify our organization, then believe me, there are certain people that we value more than others, even though we want to acknowledge it or not. Okay? And a simple story I can share for you uh, quickly is, if you look at like from a gender perspective, ladies, there were scientific books that were written and published, and there were other men that co-signed along them, that women were not physically fit to be part of the workplace, that women were not logical enough, too emotional, could not work. And this stuff was considered scientific. And people are like, yeah, women can't belong in the workplace. All right. And then you think forward, there was a Philharmonic Orchestra in the United States, started back in the 1950s, existed for more than 50 years, had always had 10% or less women representation. They then go and they ask the conductor, but why have you not had more than 10% women within this orchestra? Conductor says, in my orchestra, the people that work the hardest, at the top of their game, play the instrument the best, are part of my orchestra. My orchestra is a meritocracy. Those that are the best and the brightest are in this orchestra. They then challenged them to then say, in your next round of auditions, let's do blind auditions. So they hired a hall and they had a screen. People that came to audition, you couldn't see them when they come in behind the screen. They went to everyone and asked them, please take off your shoes so that we couldn't hear if they were wearing flats or wearing heels. And the only thing the conductor had was listening to the music and what's been played, nothing else. In one audition, more than 50 years of existence, they went from 10% to 45% women representation. But guess what, they were insisting. For them, they're meritocracy. That you are a woman does not make a difference. So long as you work hard, you will make it within my orchestra. So those kinds of case studies essentially reveal to us that we each carry biases that we've been conditioned literally through growing. It doesn't make us bad people, mm. but it says that we need to be honest with ourselves and acknowledge that there are certain biases that we've been conditioned to believe. Mm. And at the point at which we begin to acknowledge them and begin to be deliberate in order to value people and value their contributions, regardless of how it is that they look, that's when we begin to win as organizations. And so really this brings it full circle to then say for your organization to win the war on talents, that's the organization that's going to create greater comfort. That's the organization that's going to strive to see people as people and really appreciate all of their contributions regardless of what it is that they look like. These are fundamental questions that are being asked, right, of everyone and there are many more that we can go through. And for us, the start, and I'm wondering if you guys, there's a lot of energy in this room that I think we all need to just actually, let's, we're all, all going to take a big inhale and we're going to exhale together. One, two, three. <sighs> the anxiety around this conversation, I think, is misplaced. Maybe because we do it every day, we become desensitized. But we're all going to walk out of here. You guys are going to continue with your conversation, changed or irritated. So, okay. You know, we need to come into a space and start building the trust where somebody can say that. I feel like I don't know how to mentor young black women because every time I give them feedback, I think I'm a racist. That is a fundamental thing that we need to be talking about, right? Because there are young black women who are looking at senior white leadership saying, I want you to mentor me. But we've got to get through all of this stuff. So the way we do it is how do we start building relationships and connections within our organization? How do we start bringing more of a humanity into the space rather than less of our humanity within the space? So for us as an organization, we're pushing this huma human element, right? And we have to humanize senior leadership because they're dads and moms as well. Yes. With their own anxieties and conduct. And they also want, so really it's how do we start having the conversations? How do we start looking at some of the behaviors, but also looking at some of the structures? What are the structures that exclude? What are the behaviors that exclude? How do we start working on them, right? Yes. And Don't again, give away too much information. They need to pay us. Right. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Sorry, to I be honest, we've actually run out of time. You can uh, get us on our handles on LinkedIn. Dominic Harbebi, Roy Clarkman as well on LinkedIn. All right. And any of you that have time to stay afterwards would be more uh, than happy to answer your questions. Okay, okay? All right, all right.
Ah, eh, that's very dead. Just one more. Just humor me. Okay, okay? All right, all right. Thank you very much, ladies and gents. All the best for the next couple of days.